Good morning, and thank you so much for joining our live stream today. Uh, we pray that God richly blesses you and that you are truly able to encounter Christ this Sunday morning as you participate with us and worship with us online and study God's Word. And so if you're a guest with us today, this is your first time of being a part of our live stream, or if you've been with us before but never have filled out a Connect card, we would love for you to do that. And so we have an online Connect card. You can go to our website, thewellmonroe.com. The, the link is in the description of this video, and we would love to connect with you, fill that form out. Also, if you want to give and continue to support the ministry of the Well Church, we would love for you to also give. You can go to our website, thewellmonroe.com, scroll down, click give, and you are free to give in that way as well. God bless you, and may you, are richly, may you be richly blessed by our service today.
As you turn to Ruth chapter 1, I'm incredibly grateful to know Larice and uh, call him a brother, a friend, as well as, as well as fellow pastor in the city of Monroe. I love to see and celebrate what the Well Church is doing in our city to bring the hope and restoration of the gospel to as many people as possible. Uh, I was super excited to be scheduled to preach at the end of the month, uh, and then this virus thing happened and changed everyone's schedule. So when he asked me to, to be ready this week, he hadn't been feeling well, I was ready. But unfortunately, all I get to experience of the well is to look into this camera and try and imagine in my mind what it's like to worship with you. One day, Lord willing, it'll happen. But until then, we at the Crossing Church continue to pray for you and cheer you on and uh, work with you in any way we can to, to work together to saturate our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, was, it was needed already, badly in our area and, and other Bible Belt traditional cities like ours, but even more during these strange days. And so my hope and prayer for you this morning is that through the Word, through the Spirit of God, you'll be even more encouraged and more filled with hope uh, as the Well Church to experience the difference that Christ makes and then to share that difference uh, with our city, even when circumstances are so difficult 
and sometimes hopeless. God is with you, and God is at work. So let's uh, read Ruth chapter 1 and then do some work in the text. Verse 1, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. And When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful to be gathered as a church, even though it's not how we want to gather. Your Word is present, Your Spirit is present, Your people are present, even in our homes, through technology. And so you can do work because of those realities. And we thank you. We thank you that a global pandemic doesn't stop the work of God. We thank you that a global pandemic doesn't stop the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. And so do that today. Accomplish in your people. Accomplish in those who are watching Accomplish in those who may not know you all of your good purposes for our good and your glory. Father, do this because you love us. Do this because you are amazing. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Context is so essential to understanding what the Bible means. What did it mean to the person writing it? What did it mean to the people hearing it? What did it mean to the original audience? What was going on at the time? And to really grasp the story of Ruth, you have to know what that opening phrase means. In the days in which the judges ruled. Now, historically, the nation of Israel had been formed when God called Abram in Genesis chapter 12, who eventually was blessed with a son named Isaac, through whom eventually Jacob and his 12 sons would come. And, and he told Abram in Genesis 12 that he's going to bless him and make him a multitude of people. He would have descendants that wouldn't be able to be counted. He was going to give him a land, and then he's going to bless him so that he's a blessing to all nations of the earth. And so as he began to have children, then the, the descendants began to increase. And as they journeyed from the land of Canaan during a time of famine to the land of Egypt over 400 years, they grew to over a million people, 600,000 men plus women and children. And so God was blessing Abraham with descendants that couldn't be counted. And then, of course, if you know the story through the book of Exodus, they were put in slavery, they were put in bondage, and then God, through Moses, delivered them by, the, by his mighty hand, by miracles and, and plagues and mighty works. And then he was bringing his people through the, the, the Exodus and, and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, bringing his people to the brink of the promised land so that he could give them the land that he's promised them. Then you get to the book of Joshua, and it tells us how they entered in and conquered the promised land. And the book of Joshua ends with kind of this tension hanging in the air. Would they choose this day to serve the Lord, or would they choose to serve the gods of the Canaanites in the land that they lived? And Judges tells us what happened, and it wasn't good. They continually failed to live up to their end of the covenantal agreement. And so you have this cycle in the book of Judges that characterizes the book. God's people rebel, they're punished, they cry out for mercy. God hears them, and he's always faithful to keep up his end of the covenant, and he sends them a judge, a deliverer, who works to uh, release them from the oppression from the Canaanite group that put them in oppression at that time in their history. And these judges, Gideon, Samson, Deborah, Jephthah, Ehud, they save them from their enemies. There's peace restored. And while that judge remains, they serve the Lord. But when that judge dies, they go back into rebellion. They're punished, delivered, restored, and on and on through the entire book. The nation progressively, though, gets worse and worse. It's a, it's a cycle, but it's a cycle spiraling downward. The judges also get worse and worse. And the book ends with two just awful, gruesome acts of sin and immorality within the nation of Israel. So that by the end of the book of Judges... The nation of Israel is in the land of Canaan, but they're living more like the Canaanites than they are the people of God. In fact, the last verse closes in Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were doing whatever they wanted. They needed a king. They needed a leader. Another way to grasp the context of Ruth is to understand the order of the historical books in the Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible, the books of the law written by Moses, that goes from creation to the edge of the promised land. And then from Joshua through Esther, you have the, the rest of the chronological history of the nation of Israel during the Old Testament time. So from entrance into the promised land to Esther is around 444 B.C. And, and that leads into this intertestamental time between the Old Testament and New Testament, these 400 years of silence until angels begin showing up to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary to begin to prepare the way for John the Baptist and Jesus. But everything that follows Esther in the Old Testament 
happens within that time period of Joshua to Esther. So Job, Psalms, Song, uh, uh, Proverbs, Song of Songs, all of the wisdom literature happens within that time period of the historical nation of Israel. The major minor prophets, major because they're long books, minor because they're short books, all the prophetic ministry happens within that time period of Joshua to Esther. There's nothing inspired or essential about the, the order of the books in the Bible. For example, the Hebrew Bible, the Bible Jesus would have known when he was uh, during his ministry, during his lifetime. He, it, it's the same books, but in a, a different order. It's not wrong. So in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth follows Proverbs. Maybe something highlighting that Ruth was the epitome of a Proverbs 31 woman. But in the English Bible, the order is different. So for the historical books, you can think of them as nine books, three groups of three. Groups of three. Right? And you're thinking, nine books? Wait, I thought there were 12 books. Well, yes, in the Hebrew Bible, there's no 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's just Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. So those six books count as three books. There are nine, and you can group them as three groups. And the third book of each group is significant. The first two books act as a, a chronological recording of, uh, of the history of the nation of Israel. And then the third book goes back into that timeline. It doesn't carry the timeline forward, but it goes back into that time period to show some way that God was at work significantly carrying forward his redemptive plan. So Joshua judges, that's timeline, chronology. Ruth goes back into the time of judges to say, here's where God is at work carrying his redemptive plan forward. Samuel and Kings, chronology. Chronicles goes back into that timeline to show here's where God was at work carrying the messianic line of kings in Judah forward so that the, the, the king of Judah, the, the Messiah, would one day come and, and fulfill the covenant that God made to King David. And then, of course, Nehemiah and Ezra. Esther goes back into that timeline to show here's where God's at work during that time period, during the exile and the restoration to, to, to Jerusalem, where God was at work preserving his people. So there would be a genealogy leading from Abraham to Jesus. God's people would not be wiped out. So Ruth comes along and follows Judges, a time in which everything, uh, everyone was doing right in their own eyes. The nation of Israel was progressively getting worse and worse. God was at work from, from time to time in the Judges, yes, but they also needed a king. Enter the, the book of Ruth. Ruth is a story about how God began to prepare a king who would lead them well. But it begins with a famine. A famine so bad, it causes a man to take his wife and two sons from where they lived in Bethlehem, to a land outside of God's land of promise, Moab, to find food. While there, his two sons marry two Moabite, non-Jewish women, and the husband and the sons eventually die, and, the, and, and one daughter goes back home to her family, but one daughter, Ruth, stays with Naomi, and they go back to Bethlehem. And when Naomi shows up at Bethlehem, all the people who knew her, saying, can't this be Naomi? She says to them, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. You see, Ruth and Naomi were widows. And in that time period, widows lived at the mercy of society and whoever may choose to help them. And one thing the law provided was that they could go to the fields and gather leftover grain missed by the harvesters. And so Ruth ends up in the field of this man named Boaz. Boaz notices Ruth. He hears her story, how she's shown loyalty to her mother-in-law, despite the fact she didn't have to. She's a, from the land of Moab. She wasn't, didn't have to be loyal to this nation of Jews who have come in and taken over their land. Boaz begins to instruct his harvesters, leave a little bit extra for Ruth. 
Ruth is bringing back all this extra grain to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi's mind is blown. Like, who would show us this favor? Who would be this kind to us? Oh, it's this guy Boaz. Well, oh, come to find out, Boaz is this distant relative. And so according to Jewish law, Boaz could marry Ruth in what was called a Levirate marriage. And Boaz would be, for that family, what was called a kinsman redeemer, a distant relative who had the desire and the ability to purchase their well-being, to redeem them, to buy their freedom, to to buy their well-being back from a a destitute life of being widows, just picking up scraps on the ground, to you come into my house and I will take care of not only Ruth, but also Naomi, and I will provide sons that will carry along the, the name of Naomi's husband and her sons. It's a beautiful story of how circumstances worked out perfectly to bring the two of them together. And the book ends in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child and placed him on her lap and became his nanny. The neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So here's the picture. In the midst of some of the worst times of God's people, the time of the judges, there is no king, and the people were committing wicked acts, and everyone was doing whatever was right in their own eyes. God was at work. Yes, in the great judges who would show up occasionally to help them out for a time period, but also in this little town of Bethlehem through a widow who's given up all hope in her non-Jewish daughter-in-law, who's also a widow, but by God's grace is loyal and full of faith. And all through the book of Ruth, Naomi and Ruth are making decisions, but they're running smack dab into the sovereign providence of God who's out before them preparing for their well-being and their good. For her to end up in the field of Boaz and not some other field. For, her, for him to notice her, not just someone else. For him to not only be available, not married at this point in his life, but willing to be married to Ruth. And not just take on Ruth, a non-Jewish person, but to take on her mother-in-law as well and provide for her care. And this union eventually leading to the king they needed, David, a man after God's heart. David, until his own sinful failures, would lead the people to worship the Lord and live well under the law of God, and peace came to the land for a time and gave the people of God a taste of what it was like to experience life at its best, under the rule of God, with God's king leading them. So what are some things we can learn? Three takeaways from this story for us today. Number one, as God's people, we can always demonstrate his character in our lives. God's life, Jesus is alive inside of us, so we can always show the character, the the attitude, the the, the person of Christ through our actions, no matter what. One interesting thing about the story of Ruth, none of the main characters demonstrate a lack of character or morality or an immoral lifestyle. Unlike the judges who were a mess. I mean, they were, uh, uh, Gideon was a coward. Je- uh, Jephthah was willing to sacrifice his own daughter to, to win a, a victory in battle, treating God more like a pagan, pagan god. Uh, S- Samson was a complete dumpster fire, showed no care or concern for the things of the Lord, along with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, who had all of their flaws exposed in the scriptures, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, 
They live life according to God's way and God's rule, and they flourish and exhibited the fruit and blessing of knowing and walking with the Lord in the midst of the chaos of the nation, in the midst of the sinful rebellion of the people of God, the discipline of God against God's people. It was a time of famine, so God's disciplining them at that time. Not everyone went that way and worshipped idols and committed acts of immorality. There's always a faithful group of believers in all places living and enjoying a relationship with the one true God. In other words, we don't have to have a perfect environment to live as God's people. We don't have to have everything going our way to obey. We are living in the most uncertain days that we've ever experienced. When people are trying to compare what we're going through right now, they're, they're going back to World War II, the Great Depression. We've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes. No one really knows what June is going to be like. We're opening things up, but it kind of feels like we're rolling the dice, hoping it's going to work out. We have some saying lock everything down because we don't want to see hundreds of thousands of people die. Others saying let's not lock things down anymore because we have worse unemployment since the Great Depression, which is going to cause an equal or greater number of health problems. Leaders are uncertain. Is this guy right? Is this doctor trustworthy? Maybe this YouTube video is right. No, I did a Google search and found out that's conspiracy theory that can't be trusted. What if the UFO video was real? What does that mean? Murder hornets? There's this angst in our day. And then we're even more troubled by events like the, the unlawful and unjust killing of Ahmaud Arbery and the unjust lack of arrest and prosecution until a video happens to go viral. And we grieve and we want to throw up our hands and wonder, why even bother? This all seems to be hellish and evil and scary. Let's just go retreat to our homes, crawl under the covers and turn on Netflix and just live until we die or it goes away. Yet, None of those things stop us from being the people of God, from being the church, from doing the work of the mission of God, from seeing the fruits of the Spirit of God shining through us. None of that has to stop us. Like We don't have to choose that option to hide and wait for it to end. Like we don't have to, 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 to live in a different way that doesn't show the reality of the life of Christ in us. Like There's not... Um, um, a section of the Bible at the very end, like in small print. Well, this book does pretty well if life is going good, but if you go to a global pandemic, just chunk it and find whatever works. It's not there. This book reveals the timeless person and work of the one true Most High God and how we can know Him through His Son Jesus and come alive in Christ as we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. Jesus comes to live inside of us and we do the work of God in our lives. And the same God who could instantly stop this virus if he chose to, but hasn't chosen to. Which means he wants his people to walk through this with the rest of the world. So that we, his people, can show the, the difference, the distinction. Here's how you go through a global pandemic with Jesus alive in you. And it, it makes a difference. One example from the book of Ruth. That we see, back to chapter 1, verse 6, she and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people, people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road, leading them back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. 
May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And again they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi and her daughter-in-laws are widows, completely at the mercy of society. She's going to return to Bethlehem, but before she goes, she gives them permission to return to their families. Now this is an incredible act of self-sacrifice on Naomi's part. Does she need companionship? Yes. A widow's life is hard enough. A, A widow all by herself with no children or anyone else to be with her is unimaginably difficult. You are completely at the mercy of anyone who would help you or maybe take advantage of you. She needs companionship. She wants a companionship. Do you see how much they love each other? There's weeping continually among these three ladies. She needs it. She wants it. Yet she says, you go home. I'll go by myself back to Bethlehem. You go home to your families. You become their daughters again. You um, get remarried. You have children. You have a life in the future and not have to take on this life of being a widow. She is willing to sacrifice all of that for them not to suffer as she knows that she is going to suffer. She's willing to give that up give that up for herself, for them to thrive. One daughter-in-law, Orpah, returns with Naomi's blessings, but Ruth, verse 15, Naomi said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to your pe- her people and to her, go- her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Ruth, moved by Naomi's selfish, selfless love and willingness to sacrifice for, for their good, tells Naomi, I want to be with you. I want your people to be my people. I want your God to be my God. Ruth is turning away from the gods of Moab, the false gods, and embracing the one true God of Naomi. She's being converted in this instance. And what was the main cause of this conversion? The selfless, sacrificial love demonstrated by Naomi. She sees a love, a sacrifice, a devotion in Naomi that she's like, I want more of that. I want more of that kind of love and that kind of God and that kind of people in my life. One of the ways that we can live as God's people during these difficult days is not trying to beat people over the heads with truth and my position is right, your position is wrong in this, or or not trying to win arguments on social media, but simply loving others selflessly, sacrificially. Loving our family that we're in our homes with, quarantined or socially distancing, loving our wives and husbands or children well, loving our extended family well, who, who may or may not be a part of a church, and they don't know the difference that Jesus makes in someone's life, loving our coworkers and neighbors well, through simple acts 
of selfless, sacrificial uh, acts of love that at times even cost us something. Like it's even more loving for a friend to lay down his life for a friend. This is the difference that Jesus makes in us. He, he, he puts this love in us that we can share with others. That is selfless and sacrificial. We don't, we don't have the normal rhythms of our church gatherings yet. For right now, we're doing this on Sundays. But every single member of the Well Church, every single member of the Crossing Church, our church, has the Spirit of God alive in them, has been loved unconditionally by our Father in Heaven through His Son Jesus, and can love others selflessly and sacrificially in a way that is an aroma of Christ leading to life to those who don't know Him or don't know Him well. And no pandemic or shutdown of businesses or unemployment rates will and can ever stop us from being that people. We're always that people. In fact, it's going to open doors for the church like we've never had before to show the distinction and the difference that Christ makes with His love flowing through us to other people as we're sacrificing and selflessly serving our city for their good and for their thriving. So, so get locked in, Well Church. Get locked in, Crossing Church. And get ready to be the church in the everyday junk of life in 2020. As God's people, we can always demonstrate the life and character of Christ alive in you, no matter what. Secondly, no matter what happens, God is at work, so we live with hope. We read the passage earlier about Naomi's return to Bethlehem, and her her soul is so downcast, she has to have her name changed to Mara. For the Lord has made me bitter, she says. The Lord has made me bitter. I went away full and came back empty. Now, what's ironic about the reality of that statement is, who's standing right beside her? Ruth, this amazingly loving and loyal daughter-in-law. But all Naomi can see is all she's lost, which is often the mentality of the one who is bitter. All I can see is what I have lost. I don't see what is still present. I don't see where God is at work in this. You see, lament and grief and sorrow, it's necessary and needed. So much emotional health isn't happening because people don't know how to grieve anymore. They don't want to grieve. They don't want to embrace that part of how God's wired us. But, but grief in the Bible is also not grieving as those who have no hope, but grieving, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, grieving as those who have hope. In fact, both are needed to fully experience and demonstrate the life of Christ in us. So if you haven't grieved or lamented or had sorrow, all you have is this hope, you say, like you're one of those super Christians and nothing seems to bother you. You're like a Teflon skillet. Everything just bounces off of you like a robot. Then your hope will seem shallow and lacking of substance because you haven't wrestled with the depths, of the pain and sorrow of life. Something awful happens in life and you're like, I'm good. God's with me. Everything's going to be fine. You just keep moving forward or you have some kind of fake, cheesy, super Christian grin on your face. God is faithful. I'm fine, brother. Leave me alone. That's kind of disturbing when people don't grieve or lament or have sorrow. Like David in Psalm 6, verse 6. I am weary from my groaning. With my tears I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. It hurts. Killing of Ahmad hurts. The continued injustice in this nation hurts. The massive unemployment and job and food insecurities people are facing is sorrowful right now. 2,000 people a day dying from COVID-19. We lament and grieve that. This virus we can't stop. The hopelessness and fear that people are feeling that are 
that are making them not want to grieve or want to hide and wish it all away. This is lamenting and sorrowful and it grieves us that we're in this place. Grieve and lament well, but don't only grieve and lament well. And, and I don't even say don't stay there forever because it's not like you ever really leave it. You're, you're still there. You still feel it, but it's flavored by hope. It's accompanied by hope. The grief and lament are always there, but always with hope. It's not a grief or lament that puts us in a pit that's beyond our ability to see where God is at work and see the future and see what God sees in all of this. For instance, and this is often the case in the Psalms, there's grief expressed by the psalmist about the situation that they're in, but then the psalm will close with some kind of hope, some kind of assurance, some song of hope the psalmist feels. Like in Psalm 6, David is so grieving, he's soaking his couch with tears, But he finishes that psalm with verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. David's realizing, I'm not alone in this. I'm I'm drowning my couch with tears. But the Lord not only hears me, but he accepts me. Verse 10. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. He has this confidence that this situation, not true in all situations, but in that situation, God's going to fix it and make it better. So he's filled with hope. If all you have is grief with no hope, then all you experience is the plans of the enemy to crush us, defeat us, and leave us in despair and depression, to keep us pressed down, unable to see the greater realities around us. This is what Naomi was missing. She did not see where God was at work. Yes, Naomi, feel the depth of all you've lost. You should grieve your husband and son's dying. But you are not empty, dear sister. Standing right by you is Ruth, this incredibly loving and loyal daughter-in-law. And you don't know it, but God has plans for you and this Moabite daughter-in-law of yours. And God's plans, like his normal plans, typically don't work the way the world works. God typically takes the the human economy and flips it it on his head. Like, Like, for instance, the world would... Normally choose back in that day, especially the firstborn. God chooses the secondborn. The world says blood is thicker than water. But Ruth says no to her family of origin to go be with Naomi and go return to her homeland. The world typically says, even back then and even today in some cultures, values men more than women. But here in the book of Ruth, taking place in the time of the judges, where is God showing his work and his grace through these two widows who have nothing? This is where God's at work to bring about King David. So much so by the, the end of the book of Ruth. I don't know if you caught this when we read it earlier. Look at what the women say to Naomi as part of their blessing after Ruth gives birth to a son. Verse 15 of chapter 4. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Naomi comes back, call me Mara. I'm bitter. I have nothing. I'm empty. But standing by her is Ruth who's better than seven sons. Naomi, have hope. God is at work, sister. And what's remarkable about Ruth, you don't see dreams or miracles or visions or, or any of the things that God has done to, to work in the life of his people earlier in the Bible. No signs or angels or anything. It's remarkable and that is unremarkable. You don't see the spiritual intervention, the supernatural intervention of God. Yet, God is at work in amazing ways through the mundane, through the simple. Like we often meet an obstacle that is dark and heavy and we pray God, do a miracle, get me out of this, remove the obstacle, and we should pray. And sometimes God does do that, for sure. 
But it's also His work if He doesn't. And He's ordaining common, simple, mundane circumstances that also show His care and love for us to accomplish His purposes in our life. For, for Naomi, it was the simple, common things like how the, the harvesters were supposed to take care of the widows in the land and, and Levirate marriage and a kinsman redeemer, which was also God saying to His people, obey my law. Obey and do the way life uh, do life the way that I've set it up to be done, and you will do well. You will do well. This wasn't chance or happenstance that made this happen. It wasn't luck. This was God at work in church. God is always at work. Always. As John Piper famously says, God's doing 10,000 things, and we, we may be aware of three of them at any time in our life. He's at work in the miraculous. He's at work in the mundane, but he's always at work. Therefore, we don't have to be bitter or empty like Mara, but we can be full of life and hope and joy like Naomi at the end of the book. And when we honestly and deeply grieve the effects of sin and loss in this life and genuinely see God at work in this world, then we become a people, we're like little refuges for our family and our friends, our extended family, our coworkers, our neighbors, who when they see us like, hey man, they're, they're dealing with the junk of life and they're grieving it and it's sorrowful, but they're also filled with this hope that where does that come from? Where do, who puts that inside of them? We become like these little lifelines that people around us searching for hope begin to grab onto. And we're able to say, look, brother, look, sister, it ain't me. It's Jesus inside of me, and he can be inside of you too. Turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus. He did everything necessary for you to be right with God, to be received into the family of God, and he'll come to live inside of you and fill you with his hope joy, peace, and love as he reconciles you back to your Father in heaven and makes you a dearly loved son and daughter of him. We continue to live as God's people, demonstrating his life and character in our lives, no matter the circumstances. We live with hope because we see beyond just what's happening in this world. We see God at work in all the mess of the world for our good and his glory. And lastly, we live with a longing for our king to come. The promised king came and is coming again. This line of David established here at the end of Ruth. Great transition into the book of Samuel where we see the kingship of the nation established. And even though David was chosen by the Lord and anointed and was a man after God's own heart, the beauty of David was not that he was the the be-all, end-all king. The beauty of David was that he pointed to the one true king who was to come. And of course for us, on this side of the cross, after all these things have happened, we know the king has come. We know the work of the gospel has been accomplished. And we see and we experience life as God's people in much greater ways than anyone in the Old Testament did because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us permanently. And so we see and we experience God in intimate ways that, that, that other believers didn't back then. We see the worship of God spreading to parts of the world to millions of people that would have been unimaginable in the Old Testament days. We, we may be alive when Matthew 24, 14 happens. When the gospel is proclaimed to all peoples and then the end will come. Who knows? But yet, even though those, those true and present realities of God alive inside of us and experience the, the intimacy with our Father in heaven, the, the presence of Christ in our life, even though those are true and present, they fill us with joy and hope, we still ache because not all things are good and right in this world. And no matter how hard we work, we're not going to fix everything. We can't fix everything. Even if we had some kind of unlimited power to snap our fingers and make everything right the way we think it ought to be right, we don't really even want that if we're honest. 
because we would be making right what we think needs to be made right, and we'd be messing something up else up somewhere else. So we live with this longing, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus and make all things right, make all things new. Balance the scales and fix all the brokenness and injustice that we see. We don't want to see any more young men gunned down because of the color of their skin. We don't want to see any more injustice happening in our nation because any person of any color of skin looks down on and thinks less of any person of any other color of skin. We don't see any more friends and moms and wives dying of cancer, pastors taking their lives and leaving behind widows and children. We don't want to see any more death, death of marriages, death of babies, death of those that we love, death of older people and the elderly. We, we don't want to see any more sickness or brokenness or devastation that sin has brought into this world. We want to see it all come to an end when King Jesus returns and makes all things right. So come, Lord Jesus. Today would be a good day. Come, Lord Jesus, and make all things new. And until then, help us to live as your people, filled with your hope because we see you at work in us, through us, to accomplish your purposes. Father, I pray for the well church, for your blessings to fall on this on your people, that you would help them to see who they are in Christ and unleash them in our city as ambassadors for Christ, as instruments of your holiness and your love, your kindness, and your grace and mercy. That anyone who encounters anyone who is a part of the well church, they would smell the aroma of Christ because they are trusting in Jesus and living out, seeing Jesus, the reality of Jesus lived out of them. And for anyone who may be a part of the well or, or may be watching this who doesn't know Jesus, God, to, let today be the day of their salvation as they turn from sin, repent of sin, trust in Jesus to make them right with God. For your glory, for our good, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.